Hello and welcome to the Media Law Podcast, a podcast featuring news and debate from the world of media law here in the UK. In our first ever episode, we'll be talking about the ways in which minority groups are portrayed in the media. Six years after Lord Justice Leveson identified it as a problem, we'll be asking, have things improved? Hello listeners, I'm Tom Bennett and this is the Media Law Podcast, a new podcast that will explore topical issues concerning matters of law and regulation as they relate to the media. This first series will be based around the theme of responsibility and irresponsibility. The question of whether the media, including publishers, owners, professional journalists and citizen or amateur journalists, behave responsibly is one that has considerable significance in English law. It is often said that responsible journalism is something in which there is considerable public interest, and for that reason that responsible journalists, publishers and media outlets ought to be afforded protection from liability for certain activities that might otherwise give rise to successful legal claims. We'll be exploring the extent of media responsibility and legal approaches to assessing it, regulating it and sitting in judgment upon it. In this inaugural episode, we're going to be talking about the portrayal of minority groups in the media. Joining me to discuss the matter are Paul Ragg of Leeds University Law School. Hello. And Helen Belcher, one of the founders of Transmedia Watch. Hello. A warm welcome to you both. Thank you for joining me. Helen, um, you are a prominent campaigner on transgender rights. You've spoken out in recent times about the ways in which the mainstream media portray trans people in particular. Um, could you outline for us one of the key problems that, that, that you've encountered? I think one of the main issues is that it's very difficult to get uh, Ipso to rule against comments. Well, it's impossible actually to get Ipso to rule against comments which are made against groups rather than individuals. So in uh, probably the last 12, 13 months, we've had an absolute torrent of pieces which say trans people do this or trans women do this, uh, most of which is um, completely distorted, um, has fairly little relationship to the truth, but just enough so that the press can say, well, it's based on this. Um, but given they've not named any individual, it's then you, you can't take take it anywhere because um, the accuracy is very hard to pin down. If you've got a survey, they will put the press will magic an, an amazing survey up which says that eighty seven percent of people are hostile to trans people, even though that's not actually the case. They they cherry pick their evidence, um, so it's it's next to impossible to actually challenge a lot of what's going on uh, in the press. The, the pieces which are being published very routinely now. Now, uh, Ipso, you've mentioned there, that's the, the press regulator, Ipso. Um, Paul, you're familiar with the regulatory framework here. Perhaps you could just clarify for us what exactly we're talking about in terms of the regulation of the media in this field. Yes. So, Ipso stands for the Independent Press Standards Organisation, which replaced the Press Complaints Commission in the aftermath of the Leveson Inquiry and the Leveson Report into uh, press ethics and culture. And it's worth just briefly outlining for listeners the, the central difference between broadcast regulation and press regulation. Uh, as listeners will probably know, broadcast regulation is conducted by Ofcom, 
it is regulated through, uh, is regulated strictly, it's regulated on the basis of statute and by and large it seems to work uh, very well uh, in achieving uh, certain outcomes. It's not perfect but there are certain ways of speaking that broadcast news have to abide by. The situation is very different for the press and by press I mean newspapers because there is not the same legal device to force newspapers uh, to be regulated. This was one of the big issues that came out of uh, Leveson and in fact there have been numerous inquiries over the years into press behaviour and press ethics since at least the 1940s, uh, all of which come back to the same point which is the press as an organisation uh, is free to speak without being regulated uh, strictly by statute, by government interference, and so we have these two different schemes, one for broadcasters, one for the press, and the press scheme is uh, voluntary and it's also conducted, or it has been conducted in the past, by the industry itself, and it is still conducted in a way that we would call self-regulation, which is essentially the industry coming together to decide its own terms, its own standards, its own code of conduct, and then regulating according to that. I think there's there's a key difference in the way that uh, organisations like Ofcom regulate and organisations like Ipso regulate uh, in terms of what they're allowed to do. So Ofcom has um, a clause about harm and offence as does the Advertising Standards Authority, whereas Ipso, there is no such clause. So the press are free to print what they like and when challenged, or almost always go back as their initial response on, well, it's freedom of speech, mate. You, you shouldn't be challenging us. We've got the right to print what we like. Whereas broadcasters are, are much more constrained in terms of what they can broadcast and how they can be ruled against. Now, in terms of rulings against bodies and the way that they portray minority groups, you've had some experience with Ipso yourself, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I've I'm I've not been targeted in the press myself. Um, maybe I should suffix <laughs> that with yet. Um, but I, as part of Transmedia Watch, part of our role is to support people who have been. Um, subjects of press intrusion or victims of unfair uh, press reporting. So um, a few years back, Emily Brothers, uh, back, back end of 2014, Emily Brothers was a blind trans woman who had been selected to fight for the Labour Party in the upcoming general election. Uh, and Rod Little wrote a particularly nasty piece in the sun, uh, which was included the comment, well, if she's blind, how does she know she's in the wrong body? Um, and that clearly breached the discrimination clause, both on uh, discrimination against trans people, but also discrimination against disability in terms of, of blindness. So uh, working with Emily, we uh, took that through to Ipso. Um, Ipso's well, we actually took it through to the Sun, first of all, because Ipso at the time said you had to go straight to the offending publication and try and negotiate that, which obviously if you've just been traduced 
um, buy a national paper, it's not really the easiest thing in the world to go to that national paper and stand your ground. Um, what the Sun does, as all the papers will do, is they will write you a very powerfully legalese-type letter to try and put you off. Um, and then you're sort of into quite sort of in-depth arguments, really, about why this is discrimination. And they're trying to say, well, it's not discrimination. In any case, we've got the right to, to print what we like because of free speech. Um, and eventually it got to a point where it's obviously we weren't going to make any uh, headway with them. So we then went to Ipso. Ipso's initial reaction was, well, you've got to go to the sun. Fortunately, we then were able to say, we've already done that. Here's the rack of evidence. Uh, and so Ipso then um, took that forward. Um, eventually, Ipso uh, decided they needed to rule. So they made a ruling. Uh, and I think that was a historic ruling because it was the first time that Ipso or any press complaints body, I think, had taken a complaint from a representative body uh, and, and found or uh, the person who'd been introduced. Um, so Ipso then uh, said, found that the son had been guilty of um, discrimination and also they had printed a subsequent piece um, which then also was deemed to be intimidation. So they found uh, against the son on both of those. Um, they they put various conditions, which the Sun then largely ignored. So they said it had to have a particular size of headline. There was no headline at all, let alone of any particular size. Um, so this, you sort of come away feeling, well, yeah, you've kind of won, but it's a bit of a hollow victory. Um, and the Sun, as all these papers do, oh, that's terrible. Yes, we're terribly sorry. We'll do much better next time. Um, and then the cycle repeats because they, what they tend to do is they tend to try and find ways where they can write pieces which don't breach their code. So, as I said earlier, the um, where they start introducing groups of people rather than naming any individuals. It wasn't the easiest process. It doesn't sound it. Um, one thing that you've mentioned a few times is this sort of knee-jerk defence, it's free speech, mate. Um, and it's clearly something you've heard frequently from media bodies. I'm sure it's something that a lot of litigants have heard, whether at a regulatory stage or indeed in more old-fashioned common law claims for defamation and privacy. It's something that crops up time and time again. Um, Paul, you're a free speech theorist. Yep. Um, is this a matter of free speech? Is, is it even remotely conceivable in those terms? It is conceivable. Um, it's interesting, though, to see what Ipso says about this and why this is a matter of uh, free speech. And I think there's a couple of things to sort of point out. Uh, the first is a sort of myth of free speech, which newspapers like to promote themselves, which is either free speech it means literally what it says, so we're entitled to say whatever we want, and if you don't like it, that's tough. Uh, the other uh, aspect of, of free speech that newspapers like to promote, the other myth, is that there's a difference between something called free speech and something called press freedom. And that actually press freedom is more important than free speech, and press freedom is everything that newspapers say. And if you don't like that, well, that's doubly tough. Now, if we think about this legally, 
there is no such right to say whatever you want and call it free speech. Free speech is not an absolute right, either in theory or in practice. So free speech is the ability to speak unless there is a good pressing reason why you shouldn't be able to speak. Let's just go back to discrimination though. Let's just think about, about that. So as, as Helen's mentioned already, uh, Ipso has a clause, which it's clause 12 of its standards code, which says that essentially uh, prohibits discrimination against individuals. Um, the clause doesn't relate to groups. So the kind of speech that we tend to see in newspapers quite a lot, unfortunately, which is deriding a particular group or using stereotypes about a group uh, on the face of it can't attract a complaint, a successful complaint under the Ipso code. Uh, the only thing that can be done in those circumstances is to refer the matter to section one of the code, which talks about accuracy. So potentially you could have a, a complaint as a group for discrimination, but the only way you can show that the, the complaint itself is inaccurate. What's interesting is why Ipso says that this clause only applies to individuals and not groups. And I quote, and I quote from the editor's handbook, which is the guidance that Ipso uses. The code does not cover generalized remarks about groups or categories of people. This would inhibit debate on important matters, would involve subjective views, and would be difficult to adjudicate upon without infringing the freedom of expression of others. That strikes me as a a rather broad and blanket excuse to talk in any terms you like about any group of people. Exactly. And the kind of stories that actually we might want to complain about as an aspect of discrimination, it's very unlikely we would run into these kind of difficulties. I mean, of course, freedom of speech should allow us to put forward opinions, comments on difficult matters. Uh, matters that don't necessarily have an easy answer that might cause uh, offence, that might upset some people. Uh, for example, uh, discussions about Brexit, uh, Brexiteers, what Brexiteers were thinking, what they're still thinking, these kind of difficulties. Uh, they speak to groups, we might be uh, implying certain qualities in those groups, um, but we should be able to have those discussions and not be prevented uh, strictly uh, on the basis that it will it will upset other people. However, the kind of stories that we're talking about here that do involve discrimination, it is very unlikely that a regulator wouldn't be able to regulate on them. It's very unlikely that any form of regulation on those kind of discussions would cause these problems to occur. These problems of impacting on a debate on important matters uh, or being, being difficult to adjudicate upon. And let's be quite clear, the sorts of stories we're talking about here are the sorts of stories that, that I've seen out there that propagate myths, uh, you know, the idea that trans people are dangerous to others in the same way that once upon a time you had stories that gay people 
were dangerous and should not be allowed to be around children and so on and so forth. Um, but these are the sorts of stories we're talking about, right? I'm not talking about identifying Brexiteers as a group and having a go at them or Remainers as a group and having a go at them. We're talking about something much more pernicious. Yes, and I think what you're sort of starting to touch on is sort of the overall tone of pieces. Um, And so at the moment, um, government is about to conclude a consultation on reform of the Gender Recognition Act. When that was announced in July last year, the government was intending to do that that seemed to open the floodgates to a whole raft of um, stories which all seem to indicate, oh, this reform in terms of moving to a more self-declaratory model, uh, one where you might have to do a statutory declaration rather than filling a whole set of paperwork and submitting it to a panel you never meet, um, that suddenly is going to be dangerous because men might abuse it. And there's a a kind of correlation there, a sort of uh, an association between trans women and sexual offenders. So recently we've had a story about uh, two girl guide leaders who got removed uh, from their positions as guiding leaders because, and the way the press presented it is because they disagreed with uh, the the trans-inclusive policy that guides had introduced back at the beginning of 2017. Whereas the statement that the guiding group actually put out indicated that there was much more to it than that. It was about the manner in which the leaders then responded and behaved and tried to undermine the group and its policy in this area and really were not giving any leeway at all. So if you read the guiding statement, it was about the manner in which they conducted themselves, which led to the dismissal, not the disagreement with the policy. And yet the whole thing is, oh, gosh, we might have male bodied children in with with our vulnerable girls. Well, that's telling one thing, isn't it, really, which is, well, they're then going to rape them, i.e. trans women, trans girls are potential rapists. And that's it's not said, but it's very heavily implied. And that then again means it's very difficult, if not impossible, to actually start to challenge these pieces with any effectiveness, because... Um, where do you go on accuracy because they've not actually said it Uh, and it's not discriminate you know where do you go on discrimination because they've not named an individual so it's a very clever way of kind of wedging through the code and driving home a particular message that they want to present well it strikes me there there are are a couple of related issues and you, you talk about the tone of these pieces being uh, being problematic, uh, we we have both the tone in terms of the language that is used, um, which is often sensationalist or can be quite underhanded, um, uh, and you also have the tone that is achieved through the selective reporting of facts, which is precisely what you you're saying uh, happened in the girl guiding case, where uh, matters were left out, contextual matters that brought much more to bear on the story. Um, if they had been included. Um, this has you know, clear problems for, for accuracy, doesn't it? It does have uh, clear problems for accuracy, but I think also it has uh, problems in terms of the way that we regulate discrimination. I mean, I don't see why there does need to be this blanket provision that says 
there can't be discrimination cases that relate to groups. Uh, I think there will be cases where it will be appropriate for the regulator to step in and say, actually, the way that you presented this, although it doesn't affect an individual specifically named, it does affect individuals out there in the real world who then have to deal with the consequences of the way that you have reported this. And that actually, um, in these circumstances, the general reasons that you've specified why we can't regulate, that it's going to inhibit debate on important matters, it just seems a bit far-fetched and certainly not significant enough uh, to prevent us from ruling against this. This is, this is again where you come against the difference between press regulation and broadcast regulation, whereas broadcasters have to have a sense of balance where there is no such um, requirement placed on the press. So IPSO does have the capability to do investigations. Um, they have indicated to me some time ago, actually, they are concerned about the way that trans issues are reported. Uh, and it might be something that they would consider investigating. But I'm not holding my breath, let's put it that way. Now, this is a matter that the Leveson inquiry back in 2012 when the report came out, did address. Yes, Leveson heard uh, from a wide range of groups who've been affected by these issues. He heard from Helen, um, and he agreed that the issues that were raised were concerning. They they raised issues that clearly spoke to harm, harm being caused to uh, these groups, uh, harm being caused to the way that these groups were perceived. The difficulty then was that whilst he was very sympathetic to what had happened, clearly he thought it was wrong, uh, that sort of sense of frustration and concern didn't translate all the way through to the recommendations, because by the time he got to the recommendations, of course, he was set on this idea there should be a new regulator, there should be uh, an independent regulator, independent from government, but also independent from the press, and there should be a regulator with teeth, a regulator that had the power to sanction. Now, in his view, this new regulator uh, should devise its own code of conduct. But when it came to discrimination, he was still talking in the language of individuals having complaints. And to the extent that he did mention groups, he was sort of mealy-mouthed about it. He was saying, well, any kind of provision should recognize the spirit of the uh, equality legislation and anyone that wanted to set up as a regulator should be encouraged uh, to look at uh, diversity uh, in this way and of course as we know the aftermath of Leveson the political aftermath of Leveson, Leveson was very poor and uh, we didn't quite get the uh, regulatory scheme that we were that we were hoping for, but certainly to the extent that the PCC did reevaluate its own codes, becoming IPSO, it didn't do a whole lot with discrimination. It kept it as it was. The only sort of forward-thinking aspect of the new re regime uh, under IPSO was that it would now take complaints not just from individuals affected, uh, but also from from groups. And happily, that meant that uh, Helen and Transmedia Watch uh, can bring claims now. But we haven't got 
this type of provision that would allow groups in certain circumstances to be able to bring successful claims. And I think this is the way forward. This is something that a regulated lightning press can do, should be able to do. They should be able to at least consider claims that relate to discrimination against groups instead of just saying, well, that's groups. We, we can't look at groups. I think there's an, there's, there are some interesting issues around recognition of groups in terms of what groups should be recognised. So I think part of the defence used against not broadening discrimination out was precisely that actually the press wanted the, the ability to write, you know, nasty things about Conservatives or Labour Party people. Um, so therefore, if they were defined as a group, they would feel quite constrained in terms of how they did that. I mean, in my mind, there's a relatively easy knock back, which is, well, you look at the groups which are protected under the Equality Act, so you've got the nine protected characteristics. But equally, there are then some issues around that as well. So, for example, um, Muslim people are very often um, pilloried in our our press, and McDad Versi of the Muslim Council of Britain is doing a fantastic job in finding ways of um, correcting or, or forcing uh, rulings on things based on accuracy rather than discrimination, but that takes an awful lot of work. Um, but you've also got um, travellers and, and Roma people who are also fairly often introduced. Well, they're not, it's not quite so easy to fit them into a, a kind of protected group. You could sort of argue race, but it's, it, that's a quite a weak link. What then happens about teenagers who are introduced repeatedly, you know, sort of work, you know, generation snowflake, all of this kind of stuff. Um, so there are there are issues in terms of opening that up. But it, I think that's probably more issues actually in the underlying Equality Act in terms of if certain groups of people are protected, on what basis do we determine that what other groups should be protected or not? And I think it's also important to recognise that the Equality Act is largely based in terms of protection of employment and protection of or lack of discrimination in terms of service provision. It doesn't it's not really there to sort of protect against um, the kind of issues that the press are going to throw or the media are going to throw in terms of freedom of speech. Yes, no, I completely agree with that. I think you made some really good points there. Um, I, I suppose I'd like to see some just some progress um, as you say even if we did recognize it in the spirit of the, uh, the equalities legislation that wouldn't that wouldn't cure everything but at least it would be a start mm. and at least it would then get us past this blanket ban this blanket ban of saying well you're a group you can't complain I think there is it's it's really interesting to sort of see how Everything is treated as a kind of an extreme theoretical case. We can't do these things because we want to write nasty things about the Conservatives. So therefore we can't yeah. do these kind of things, yeah. as opposed to looking at ways they could do these kind of things uh, and yeah. sort of en enabling rather than um, yeah. prescribing is, is, is the sort of balance. I, yeah. But they seem to get wrong a bit. Yeah, and uh, look, I don't think there's, there's ever... There's a problem with that in, in, in the sense that newspapers, unlike the broadcast press, newspapers are entitled to be partisan. They are entitled to pin their political colours to the flag and therefore present 
a skewed view of life. They're entitled to present their worldview seen through their lens, be that a Tory lens, a Labour lens, whatever. Um, so, but that's, that's different, I think. That is a lot more manageable. The, the, the difficulty that we run into is the one that you've highlighted very uh, persuasively, which is, um, well, what about traveller groups? What about youth presented in a particular way? Um, I still think even with those categories, there could be analogies that are made that in the spirit of the equalities legislation, and of course, Leveson doesn't actually define what he means by the spirit of equalities legislation. He just sort of hangs it out there and sort of thinks, well, that's, that's grand enough. But we could say that discrimination, discrimination in a literal sense against traveller groups, uh, young uh, teenagers would fall into the spirit of the equalities legislation because the kind of discrimination that we are talking about is essentially bordering on, on a, uh, an irrational hate, an irrational dislike for a particular group based upon a particular characteristic. I think you look at the kind of groups that we're talking about. So um, being trans, um, being young, being a traveller is something you are mm. as opposed to something you choose. Yeah. And I think it would be very straightforward to turn around and say you, you really can't discriminate against people on the basis of who they are. But it then may be acceptable to start to say, well, being a member of a political party is in some ways a choice. And therefore you are aligning yourself with a particular yeah. philosophy by choice. And that is that is right for criticism. I think you're absolutely right. The other aspect that I was trying to draw out there though, was that I'm referring to a sort of certain level of seriousness when I start to talk about an irrational hatred towards a particular group or an irrational way of treating a particular group. I'm talking about the more serious cases. These are the ones that strike me as being ripe for regulation. These are the ones that strike me as being fit for a particular guy, a particular fine or a particular sanction. What I'm not persuaded by is that having those kind of discussions is going to somehow impact on serious uh, political debate. So the point that I'm making is that tackling this kind of discrimination need not affect uh, journalism. We are not saying that there needs to be this high-minded level of journalism. We're not saying that there can't be popular discussions. And we're not saying that those popular discussions can't sometimes be heavy-handed or appealing in a uh, particular way that's not that's not sensitive. What I am saying is that the regulator should not be able to hide behind the fact that only a group uh, is affected by these uh, discussions. I think effective regulation, I think David Allen Green brought this out in his evidence of Everson. Effective regulation means that things that you don't want to happen won't happen because the, the framework is there to make people think about it before they do it. And I think at the moment, the, the feeling that I very much get is that the press is pushing and pushing and pushing. Um, and it knows quite well where the, the, the acceptable boundary is. And it's trying to push beyond that. And the regulators 
really not doing very much to stop that. Whereas if the regulation was effective, you, you would know where that acceptable boundary was and the press would respect it because they'd know there were penalties for, for crossing it. Yeah. So, Alan, we've, we've sort of focused in a way on um, the bad journalist. So, that, you know, what is it we can do about the journalist who is perhaps unrepentant or recalcitrant who thinks, well, I'm going to write what I want, what are you going to do about it? But what do we do uh, to help the good journalist, the one that wants to put the positive story out there? How can we use regulation to help with that kind of journalism, that kind of aim? Well, I mean, I, I'm not entirely convinced there are huge numbers of bad journalists out there to begin with. I think there, there are probably more bad editors than bad journalists. And so people go into journalism very often with the best of intentions. They want to expose wrongdoing. They want to make the world a better place through what they're doing. So I think it's, again, it's in terms of reinforcing the regulation, regulatory regime so that the, the good journalists actually can use that to stand up to their editor, their editors, to you know, turn around and say, this really is not within this. What you're asking me to do is not within the spirit of the code. Um, and that it wouldn't get them into huge problems. It would actually be seen then as the journalists are protecting the press, the paper or the editors from doing stuff which which could land them into trouble mm. as opposed to being obstructive in terms of what the press's agenda on a particular topic is so so i think it's more in terms of making sure that regulate regulation has teeth that it actually can operate independently and i think that's one of the things that um saddens me most actually around how the post leveson world has has happened um, you know, we, when I gave evidence back in 2012, it was there was a real feeling that we could actually get something this time. Mm. Um, and, and to see the government kind of just capitulate bit by bit, sort of fold in a bit like an origami bird and just kind of collapse this flat sheet of paper again, yeah. uh, has been so disappointing um, because you just see that the press has gone back to how it was pre-2012 you know they were busy shouting about the Leveson chill well there is there is no Leveson chill at the moment and certainly sitting from the trans perspective where last weekend the Sunday Times printed six anti-trans pieces and referenced trans in another four mm. in a partic not particularly helpful way um, that's not a Leveson chill by any stretch of the yeah. imagination so I think that the, the government actually has an awful lot uh, to blame yeah. for this. I think they, they really should have had a bit more courage of their convictions and, and said, yeah. no, we've got to put these, uh, the, we've got to make a properly independent and accountable authority. And actually, if the press refuses to do this, then we have to do take that kind of next step, I'm afraid, and actually start looking at state-imposed regulation, if, even if it's only for a short timescale. I'm not a great fan of state-regulated uh, industries in that way, especially with this, because the sort of potential for it to go wrong is horrific. Um, but if the press is hiding behind that and still doing horrific things, uh, you know, on the grounds of freedom of speech, 
there's something wrong. Freedom of speech is there to hold the powerful to account. It's not there to abuse the vulnerable. Yeah, and I think the the, the difficulty, I mean, the position that I started from uh, was I could see quite clearly the reason why the Ipso code was written in the way that it was, the way that it separated groups from individuals, when I had at the front of my mind uh, discrimination against individuals being something that causes a very real harm, and we've seen lots of complaints, and you mentioned the Emily Brothers uh, case, you see an individual there who is directly harmed by the discriminatory conduct, as against uh, the discrimination against a group uh, which is unpleasant, offensive, but didn't strike me as particularly harmful when it's just directed against a sort of nameless mass. So, for example, the one that Leveson refers to in his uh, report is the story that asylum seekers are eating our donkeys. So, looking at that story, I thought, Okay, well, I can't see how that's going to cause great harm to the uh, asylum community because it's so ridiculous. Um, but actually, the more I listen to the kind of experiences that Transmedia Watch has identified, uh, the more I see that there is this grey area in between where there is a story that is ostensibly about a group but will lead to and does lead to harm against individuals there's just it's just that one those individuals aren't named um but those individuals are identifiable and the harm against them is real and, that, and that's the area i think where regulation needs to come on and it needs to um, address the gap it's what these pieces enable so while i mean a year or so ago there was a lot of emphasis on trans children um, and should we be treating trans children and pumping them full of hormones and doing genital reconstruction surgery on them? And actually the reality is they're not pumped full of hormones and no surgeon will touch somebody until they're at least 16 and generally 18. So, but what then happens is that because the press started to say, well, we can't name this trans child for legal reasons, suddenly other trans children across the country who may have been face value in similar situations suddenly kind of got a lot of it's you isn't it in the paper it's you and so this one story has ramifications across dozens of other children's education where they're sort of pulled out from schools um, they're getting an awful lot more bullying not just from children but from adults as well so it's it's what these pieces enable i think is the problem yeah And now we have a section that I think we're just going to call the news. What's been going on in the world of media law of late? Uh, I have an Australian defamation case. Really? Record damages. Yes, the case of Wagner and Harbour Radio uh, is a case in the uh, Supreme Court of Queensland where a record $3.7 million has been handed out in libel damages. Mm -hmm. uh, to four claimants in respect of comments that were made by a commentator known to be controversial. Um, interestingly, these are these were these were 
76 distinct defamatory statements made across 27 broadcasts in relation to the collapse of a dam um, at a quarry that was owned by the four claimants who were defamed. So record level of damages uh, in respect of that. That pushes the level of damages in Australia well beyond anything I think we've seen before. Certainly would be a it's a lot higher than you'd ever get in the UK with the notional yeah. 220,000 cap on damages yeah. for defamation here. Um, so there's that. And whilst we're on the subject of libel, I thought also worth mentioning uh, Elon Musk, the yeah. entrepreneur and serial Twitterer, um, who has uh, anyone familiar with the news over the summer won't have failed to see this, uh, who has gone and libeled, apparently, um, one of the rescuers of the children stuck in the cave in Thailand, yeah. uh, one Mr. Vernon Unsworth, he was one of the divers uh, there. Uh, on, in, in several tweets, Elon Musk has um, called the man a paedophile. Several tweets? Several tweets, yes. He's doubled down on the original allegation. Uh, there was wow. a point at which he seemed to row back from it a bit, and then he came out and, and, and did it again. Uh, anyway, um, the claim has been issued in California for libel, um, and I had been wondering why, with yeah. the First Amendment protections, you would bring a claim in the US and not in the UK, but it seems a separate claim is uh, intended to follow in London. And, of course, that will have to be brought uh, within a year yeah. given the limitation period on claims in libel here. If there's multiple messages, maybe he thinks he can overcome the um, malice standard. Yes, well, I should think that's... Because presumably he's, the case, he's not going to be a public figure. Or will he be a public figure? Well, that is a very interesting question. Is, is the diver a public figure? Um, arguably... By U.S. standards, I think he might well be, mm. since this was a very prominent international incident. Yeah, and it was you know, splashed across all of our screens for well, well over a week. Yeah, during the summer. Um, but I should think, by the standards of English law, he's unlikely to reach the level of well, public it, figure. It's an interesting question because I'm not convinced the English authorities on public figure are sufficiently established that we can say for sure who would be a public figure and who wouldn't be a public figure. I mean, one of the things going against him being a public figure is how brief the episode has been, how briefly he has been known as an individual. And the fact he had to repeat his name, I still didn't know who he was. But in America, presumably it's the intensity of the scrutiny that a particular individual gets that means they can be called a public figure, even though they've only been known uh, for Andy Warhol's 15 minutes. Mm. That plus the prominence given to the event that has put their name into the public eye. Well, if, that's yeah. a pu- if that's a matter of public interest, then yeah, um, there we are. All right, well, there we are. So there's libel claims in both uh, past and possibly future. Yeah. Um, do you have any news? Got two pieces of news. Uh, one's bigger than the other. There's the Cairn Cross review going on, obviously. the um, So Dame Cairn Cross is investigating 
the sustainability of high quality uh, journalism in the UK. She's asking the question of what can be done, if anything, to sustain our local and regional newspapers. There have been closures upon closures. 300 titles have been lost uh, since 2007 uh, in terms of the local and regional press. But I don't think that figure does actually capture the number of hyper-locals that uh, have arisen in their place. But the question is, the individual who wants to discover high-quality journalism focusing on their region, focusing on their area, uh, where do they turn to? So yeah, there's that. And then also an interesting letter uh, that uh, was sent to the Times uh, on the 13th of July 2018 from Ofcom. Um, Ofcom wanting uh, independent regulation of uh, news published through social media, particularly in response to the uh, phenomena of uh, fake news and also clickbait. So Ofcom asking the question of whether uh given the fact that a lot of people say that they trust uh, outlets like Facebook ahead of the traditional press as a source of uh, information, uh, whether that is an area that should be regulated by Ofcom. And the, the, what Ofcom are asking for is the power to regulate the social media platform rather than the websites and so forth that are linked to on it. So you're talking about regulation of I don't Facebook. Think, I don't think they've thought it through. You before. haven't thought it through at you're all. You're looking at me quizzically. <laughs> I am. Well, you have I no am, answers. I only have a piece of paper that I'm reading off. I, that's that's the extent of my knowledge. So it's a letter to the Times in which they're discussing something that has not been Yeah, but it, it raises through. an interesting question about, because of course this was one of the criticisms of Leveson, that Leveson was outdated from the moment it was published because it never talked about the internet. Lord Justice Leveson sort of pretended, well, he didn't quite pretend as if the, the internet didn't exist. I think Lord Justice Leveson is very clear that the internet exists. Is that defamatory? I felt like I was getting a bit close there. Um, Lord Justice Leveson is well aware that the internet exists. <laughs> we are happy to clarify. Um, but the, 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 the criticism that was made of the Leveson report was that he didn't tackle the harm raised by this problematic information, even if it doesn't come from the traditional press, finding its way into the public domain through the internet. So maybe Ofcom is picking up the baton that uh, Leveson didn't so much drop as never picked up in the first place. Mm. Interesting stuff. All right, last piece of news from me uh, is uh, to do with phone hacking. Uh, Phone hacking has been... Back in the courts, if not in the news, 16 distinct cases were settled uh, last week, so that's early October, um, by newsgroup newspapers um, to a whole bunch of people, including some actors from Coronation Street and the former boxer Frank Bruno. Uh, and substantial damages were paid in each. But um, there is a, a trial scheduled... Um, for other phone hacking cases still against newsgroup newspapers that haven't settled as of the date of recording this um, which is due to begin next week right that'll do I think
So that brings us to the end of this episode. My thanks to Helen and Paul for joining me today. Uh, the episode is available on SoundCloud and iTunes. Do subscribe. Do tell your friends about us. You can follow the Media Law Podcast on Twitter at Media Law Podcast for all our latest news. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. The Media Law Podcast was presented by Tom Bennett at City Law School. It was recorded at City University of London. 